Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. And I hope, though, that you have to physically look at me. You can see Jesus nonetheless with the eyes of your heart this morning. As you know, the world around us has values and methods of operation and outlooks which are very different from God's values and methods of operation and outlook. And therefore, it's mandatory for us as Christians to renew our minds consistently in the Scriptures to find out what things are true. Well, the world has very different ideas about what makes a person great than God does. This morning, we want to look at the words of Jesus Christ and see what He says true greatness is and how to attain it. Matthew chapter 20. Let's begin with verses 17 to 19. And as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him up to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up, Now, this was Jesus' last journey to Jerusalem. He was going up for his last celebration of the Passover, was about to be killed. And therefore, he took the disciples aside and reminded them of God's purpose and his plan that he would die and then be raised again. This is at least the fourth occasion that Jesus told his disciples of this plan. The first is recorded in Matthew 16 after Peter's great confession, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And chapter 17 records two instances of such instruction. Jesus took the disciples aside to tell them these things because as yet this message, this plan of God was not yet public information. Jesus didn't want to get to Jerusalem and have the whole crowd agitated against the Jerusalem authorities and thwart God's plan that he die for our sins. And so he takes the disciples aside and he tells them that he's going to be delivered up. He will be judged by the the Jewish leaders. They will then deliver him over to the Romans because the Jews didn't have the authority to execute anybody. And he will be crucified like a criminal. But on the third day, he will rise again. Now, this is at least the fourth time Jesus had told this information to the disciples. And yet... Luke tells us in his account of this conversation that that the disciples didn't understand a thing that Jesus said. That's apparent from what follows. Apparently they were still caught up thinking about his prior instruction back in chapter 19, verse 28, when he said, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Apparently the disciples were all caught up in the glory that would be theirs in following Jesus and sharing in his reign upon the earth when he would set up his kingdom. And therefore they didn't hear what he had to say about his death. Because they misunderstood his way to glory and they misunderstood their way to glory. Now many of us can do the same. We hear plenty of preachers around who are telling us God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and successful. Despite the fact that the New Testament never says that God necessarily wants those things for us. 
We can easily get the mindset that Christianity is the road to ease and luxury and comfort for us. Follow Jesus and life will be a breeze. And yet Jesus goes on in the next section and he instructs his disciples that glory comes through suffering and that greatness comes through service, humble servitude to others. Let's read verses 20 to 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in the kingdom, that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit, one in your right and one in your left. Humble request. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercised authority over them. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark tells us in his gospel that James and John were the one that asked this question. Apparently they were behind it, as we see that Jesus responds to them and not their mother. And yet they set their mother up to ask the question, thinking that she'd have more clout with Jesus. There's some indication she may have been his aunt, or she may have been a contributor to his ministry and, and thought that maybe there would be a few strings attached to her gifts. But behind it was the ambition of these two disciples. Apparently they'd been thinking about Jesus' statement back in chapter 19 about ruling. And they were not content to merely be in one of the twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes. They wanted to be the top dogs. They wanted the positions immediately on either side of Jesus himself. John Dean wrote a book about his Watergate experience called Blind Ambition, which he says that his ambition blinded him, blinded his perception, and clouded his thinking. It appears that that's what hap- what's happened to these two disciples. They're ambitious. They want the front position. And their ambition has blinded their thinking. They actually thought that Jesus would bestow these positions of honor merely as a personal favor to them. It seems that maybe they thought if they were clever enough to be the first ones to ask, then they would uh, uh, preempt the others and, and get these seats of honor. Mark tells us that they even said, Lord, we want you to do whatever we ask for you. It appears that they were thinking, well, if we can trap him, get him to say yes before he knows what we're going to ask, then surely we can get these positions. So clouded was their thinking due to their own ambition and pride, self-centeredness. We can also see that their thinking was clouded because they 
don't seem to recognize at all that the other ten would be indignant at such a request because by putting them in these positions would mean that the others would be excluded. And how self-centeredness blinds us as well. Clouds our thinking so we don't see straight because we want recognition and honor and status and attention from other people. And we, as these two, let oftentimes let the world revolve around our own selfish feelings and ambitions. Jesus answers by asking a question. Uh, he says, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? We know from the imagery of the Old Testament that this cup was the cup of the wrath of God, which would be poured out upon him. as He would die on the cross as the Savior of mankind, taking our sins upon himself. He says, you don't know what I've told you. You haven't listened. I'm about to go die. Are you able to identify with me and suffer as I do? He says, you don't realize the path to the glory that you want. Because though glory is available for us, the pathway is always through suffering. As we identify with Jesus Christ and follow him, there is going to be suffering for us. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who, de- who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, for most of us, persecution doesn't take the form of, of uh, being beaten, having our lives threatened. It's simply a mild form of being ridiculed, maybe people snickering. Maybe it's just we think that other people are thinking that we're religious fools. And yet, Many times we don't even want to put up with that kind of suffering. But Jesus says the road to glory is through suffering. Christianity is not an easy path to, uh, to personal fulfillment and, and uh, power. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, about his own persecutions, the fact that he was stoned, beaten, uh, run out of town, shipwrecked, uh, jailed. He says, for slight Momentary afflictions, all these things are slight, uh, are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He says that the suffering that we undergo now, because we identify ourselves with Jesus Christ, we're ready to take the ridicule, the abuse of other people, whether it's verbal or physical, actually prepare for us uh, a greater inheritance in eternity. Jesus says that the road to glory is through suffering. They respond to his question blithely. Yes, we're able. Of course, we can do anything. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit in my right and my left, this is not mine to give. He says, yes, you are going to drink my cup. You're not going to experience the wrath of God as I have in in terms of paying for men's sin. But by identifying yourself with me, you will experience the wrath of men. A similar type of suffering. Uh, James died as a martyr, as Acts 12 tells us. John lived to an, uh, an old age, and yet he suffered persecution, exile on the island of Patmos. They had to eventually drink the cup that Jesus drank. But he says, in spite of this, it's not mine to simply bestow these positions of honor on the, on the basis of favor. It's because you've asked a favor to me. No, These are reserved for the people that God has prepared for them, 
those who would best rule, best fit in these positions. Well, when the ten heard this, they became indignant. The nerve of James and John to try to weasel their way into the to the top two positions in the kingdom and leave these other ten standing in the cold. The reason that they were indignant was because they were selfishly ambitious as well. Had they been humble, self-effacing servants, they would have been grieved at the uh, audacity and the presumption of these two, but they wouldn't have been indignant. They were indignant only because they wanted those positions themselves. So Jesus then addresses all twelve. Verse 25, But Jesus called them, all twelve, to himself, and he instructs them. His instruction is really quite gentle. It's straightforward, but he's very kind to them. Very reserved. He could have blasted them. You nincompoops! Don't you realize that you are supposed to be Occupying yourselves with concerns of God's glory, not your own? Don't you realize that I've told you that I'm about to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die? And you think nothing of me? You think only of yourselves and the petty glory that you want? But he didn't uh, blast them that way. He instructed them gently. And he contrasts for them the the nature of rulers among the Gentiles, among the unbelievers, and the nature of rulers among God's people. And he contrasts both the manner of ruling and also the method of obtaining rule. He says that that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. When they rule, they uh, uh, get big-headed. They love the positions of honor, the status, the titles they get, the respect that people give them, the power that it affords them. And so they push people around. Jesus says it's not to be so among you. You are to be a servant. And many of us are in positions of of leadership, whether it's in the home or uh, on the job. And we have to be careful from falling into the same trap as the Gentile leaders do because it's the natural response of the flesh to get big-headed and to start pushing our weight around now there are many christian men who in their home read that the bible says they're to be head and they get the wrong idea they start acting like the gentile rulers they think that being head means that they have the license to self-indulgence they're the boss they can call the shots they can uh do anything that they want, make everybody conform to their wishes and wants and desires. Fail to realize that being head means that they're to be the chief servant. Sure, they're to exercise leadership and be responsible for decisions, but they're to to make all decisions based upon what's good for the whole family and not selfishly push their weight around. Jesus says our manner of exercising leadership is to be different from that of the world. He also says that the method of obtaining leadership is to be different. He says that their great men exercise authority. In other words, men who are great by means of birth, their noble birth, or their education, or their personal abilities, are the ones who are leaders. Jesus says it shall not be so among you. If you want to be great, 
You've got to learn to be a servant of people. Because it's those who are servants of people who are going to be given spiritual leadership now and spiritual leadership in his kingdom reign and throughout eternity. Jesus wants to make this point very clear, so he emphasizes it. And he moves from the lesser to the greater in verses 26 and 27. In verse 26, he says, Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. In verse 27, Whoever wishes to be first among you, not merely great, but the top, must be your slave. A slave is one who has no rights. He's at the beck and call of his master. He has no contract to protect his interests. He has no union to to bargain for him to get better working conditions and, and benefits. He simply does what the master says. Jesus is giving us here the choice. He says we can be petty people living petty lives or we can be great people living great lives. And if we want to be great, he says, we have to learn to be servants, yea, even slaves of other people. Not always worried about whether we're getting a a fair shake, whether people are being sensitive enough to us, whether we're getting 50-50 in our relationships. But a slave, for Jesus Christ's sake, is one who's willing to serve and be spent for the sake of other people. He's not always out for himself, demanding his rights, getting his feelings hurt because people are not paying attention to him giving him the honor and respect due him. And Jesus then exemplifies for us what this kind of servant is. When Jesus embarked in his ministry, he didn't lay down certain conditions. Okay, I'll minister if I'm adequately reimbursed for what I've done, if I can maintain a standard of living equal with my peers, if I can be respected by people, if I can have enough time off to pursue all the hobbies and recreational activities I like. No, he didn't come in with a long list of rights and conditions. He says instead in verse 28, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He is the example of servanthood to us. He tells us the content of his servanthood is giving his life a ransom for many. This is a phrase which is fraught with theological significance. The word ransom implies that we were in bondage, in need of being delivered by the payment of a ransom price. We were in bondage as mankind to the guilt of sin. We needed to be delivered. Jesus Christ paid the ransom price of his own life to God the Father, to whom the debt of sin was owed. We transgressed his law. He was able to pay the price because he himself was sinless. He had no debt of his own to pay. And he was able to pay the price for all of mankind because though he was man, he was God in the flesh and therefore able to pay for an infinite number of people. Let's think through some of the implications for us of what it means to be a servant. Jesus says if we want to be great, we've got to learn to be the servant of all. One way in which servanthood is is needed is in in our relationships together as a church. When you come here on Sunday morning, is your uh, attitude, I'm coming to be served solely, 
Are you coming also asking, uh, how can I serve this morning? Are you sitting there waiting, wondering, who is going to reach out to me today? Or you're wondering, whom can I reach out to today? Where's a lonely face, a stranger, somebody with a need that I can reach out to and at least make them feel warm and comfortable coming to, to the gathering of the fellowship? Maybe meet some of their personal needs. We need to to be servants, not simply looking out for what's going to be in it for us. Now, love and servanthood are growing in our church, and it's uh, I'm very thankful for that. The signs that I see last uh, Sunday night, Dave Pavlik was sharing his own needs and struggles uh, personally and financially. And people responded tremendously. The whole service was geared to encouraging him. And then we took up a collection for his financial needs and raised $2,600 last night. Praise the Lord. But we have a, uh, though we see signs of growth, there are many other ways in which we as a body need to, to learn to serve one another. One area that's of deep concern to me is our children's ministry. We don't have enough people who feel specifically called to minister to children, to uh, take care of all of the staffing uh, responsibilities and needs that we have in the children's ministry. And so we've developed what we call a co-op Sunday school and have asked all the parents of preschoolers and elementary age children to participate and take a part of the responsibility of the ministry to the children. And unfortunately, a lot of people haven't responded yet. I'm afraid that many of us come with the attitude I've worked hard all week. I deserve to kick back and take it easy on Sunday. Have people minister to me. Somebody else will have to do that. Well, such an attitude's fine if we want to be petty people living petty lives. But if we want to be great people living great lives, then we need to be the servants of all and at least assume our own responsibility. Another area in which servanthood is much needed is in the area of conversation. Are you as interested in listening to other people as you are in having them listen to you? Most of us, much of the time, are not really fully listening to what other people have to say because we have our own stories, our own ideas, our own insights. We're just kind of waiting for a pause in the conversation so that we can inject our ideas tell our thing. A lot of times we're not willing to listen and pay attention to to what another person said and reflect on it and show understanding. The problem is we don't want to be servants. We want to be served. In our conversation, we're in great need of servanthood towards one another. Another area in which servanthood is much needed is in marriages. Marriages are falling apart all around us and even within our own church. We have marriages falling apart. And it's no big secret. I'll tell you what the biggest problem in marriage is. In one word, selfishness. God's antidote to that problem is servanthood. We need to not be so attentive to our own needs. Marriage is hurt because husband and wife are both sitting there thinking, why are not my needs being met? Why is he or she not more attentive to me? And think about what I want to do more of the time. We need to learn to be a servant. As Jesus says, be a slave. Not be so concerned and uptight about our rights, whether or not we're getting a 
fair shake and a 50-50 deal. We need to determine what the needs of our spouses are, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and set ourselves to trying to meet those needs. Now, one marriage counselor has said, I think very accurately, that the problem with marriages is that the biggest source of conflict is that women tend to be insatiable and men tend to be insensitive. I think he's right. Women tend, though there, I'm sure there are many exceptions, but women tend to have an insatiable emotional appetite. They want to be listened to and understood and cared for and pampered. The problem is that we men are not too good at those things. So you women need to not be so selfish. Don't worry so much when your husband is insensitive to you, not meeting your needs. Instead, ask yourself, how can I meet his needs? Many women are bothered all the time, always getting their feelings hurt because he's not doing his share. He's not doing this. He's not doing that. He's not showing me the concern I want. And as a result, they become nagging. They're always trying to get him to change. Jesus says, if you want to be great, then be a servant. You serve him. Don't try so hard to get him to serve you. On the other hand, the problem with most of us men is that we tend to be insensitive. Let me read from you a description of a, a book I picked up the other day and am reading right now and have, have greatly benefited from it so far. It's called uh, Do Yourself a Favor, Love Your Wife. This is a typical scene of the uh, illustrating the insensitivity of men. The bedroom door slams. And Fred hears his wife stomping down the stairs. He is glued to the television. As he watches the Miami Dolphins huddle, he quickly opens the door, and his ears pick up the clamor of pots and pans being thrown all around the kitchen. They pick up a first down, but there's a flag on the play. Darn, he thinks. Fred takes a gulp of beer and grabs for a pretzel as he shouts, Susie, go down to the kitchen. Ask your mother if anything is wrong. The Dolphins call timeout with 30 seconds left and the score on the clock. Score tied. The quarterback trots over to the sideline. Susie drags her Miss Beasley doll down the stairs. The horn-rimmed glasses drop off the doll's face into the bottom step. As the kitchen door flings open, Susie says to her mother, Daddy wants to know if anything's wrong. That's typical! Just typical! exclaims the mother with a high pitch in her voice as she plops disgustedly down the kitchen chair. Susie scrambles back up the stairs, and as she drags her doll past the bedroom door, her dad cries out, Susie, well, what'd she say? She's tickled, just tickled to death. <laughs> Answers Susie as she looks at the fleeting, puzzled expression in her father's face before he turns back to the TV set. The right end catches the quarterback bomb and streaks down the sideline, yells the announcer, as the superstar stumbles over for the touchdown. Somehow... Dad hears the cry of his infant son in the other room above the tumultuous noise of the television. He thinks, why in the devil doesn't that baby's mother do something? And he reaches for another pretzel. We men tend to be insensitive, and I hope that you aren't quite as bad as, as that man, but many of us are. One area in which we tend particularly to be insensitive is in the area of communication. We don't feel such a strong urge to communicate, so it's easy for us to come home and plop down in front of the TV or the sports page and wonder why in the world she wants to talk so much. For us, a succinct two-minute summary 
of all that's transpired during the day is plenty. And we're insensitive to the fact that she wants to tell us everything that's happened and she wants us to tell her everything that's happened. And we're insensitive to the fact that, that she has emotional needs that are crying out to be met. She wants us to listen to her and to understand her. She wants us to share our own hurts and needs, share with her on the feeling level, not just uh, treat her as a, a business associate. There's one computer talking to another simply about a few facts. How little we as men and women understand one another's differences, the differences of the psychological makeup of the sexes. But Jesus says if we're going to be great, we have to be the servant of one another. And part of what that means is determining the needs that each has and attempting with all our might to meet those needs. Another area that we need service servanthood in is particularly with the young people. I remember when I was a junior high age and high school age, I was so concerned with being in that I would not for the life of me reach out in love to somebody that was considered out. But being cliquish, being concerned with being cool and uh, trying to be the most sarcastic one in the group are not marks of the follower of Jesus Christ. Being a big shot, being a macho he-man and all these other things do not make a person great. Being a servant does. We read again what Jesus says. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Whatever your social relationships in church, in the, in the home, in school or work, ask yourself, am I here to be served or to serve and to give up my life for other people? Jesus Christ calls us to true greatness True greatness comes through serving. And then in the next section, he exemplifies such servanthood for us. And as they were going from Jer- out from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the multitude sternly told them to be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you wish me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. Now I can imagine, had I been Jesus at this occasion, I would have been so preoccupied with my impending death or with my frustration over the spiritual immaturity of those dumb disciples, that I wouldn't want to be bothered by these two insignificant blind men. And yet Jesus shows for us what it means to be a servant. He didn't let his feelings of concern over his own plight get in the way of the needs of others. He was sensitive to these two men and reached out to love them. Muhammad Ali claims that he is the greatest he may be a very great boxer, or at least he was. I don't know how he is now. But athletic prowess, financial success, organizational power, 
personal beauty and charm are things that were that are uh, highly regarded in the world as making you great. But such things don't make you great at all in God's eyes. Jesus says if you want to be great, you've got to be the servant of other people. If you want to be first, then you must be a slave. Lord, we thank you for the instruction that you give us that we might have lives that are significant, meaningful, and satisfying. Lord, we don't want to accept pettiness. We want to be great people, fulfill all the potential that you have for us. Lord, it's very hard to pull of our own flesh. The pull of the examples of the world around us are all towards self-indulgence. Teach us, Lord, what it means to be the servants of other people. Free us from the self-centeredness that plagues us. Lord, we want to be your servants today. Here we are. We're yours. Take us and use us in the lives of others. We pray these things, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. And for his sake, amen.